I want to, uh, as we wrap up this series, we have two lessons in this series on first principles of Christianity. The last two are inextricably linked, tied. It's, it's hard to talk about one without talking about the other. Uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Uh, after this series, we're going to go into a series on uh, encounters with Jesus. Some of the times that Jesus met with individuals in the Gospels and what he had to say to them and what those encounters tell us about Jesus. And, and of course, thinking ultimately about how uh, we encounter Jesus in our lives and what, what he is for us. As we finish up this series, it's not an understatement to say that the resurrection of the dead is the most important of these elementary doctrines of Christ, right? We think about this list that we have here that we've been going through, Hebrews 6, 1 through 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, the instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, we've gone through all of the, the previous ones, of course, and we think about the last two, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, they go hand in hand. There has been an interesting debate that has been forming in certain secular circles, secular either atheist or, or agnostic, but academic circles about the utilitarian value of Christianity, right? Religion more generally as we are advancing towards a post-Christian society and what that has done to society as a whole. And there's a lot of good things about Christianity, right? From a societal perspective, the way we should treat one another, care about the world, the way we need to love our neighbors, this sort of shared foundation of truth, the shared foundation in morality. And so a lot of people are coming to this idea, and we understand it, I think, the, the utilitarian nature, the benefit to society that Christianity has. But here's the hang-up. The metaphysical aspect of Christianity, the supernatural parts of Christianity, of which the resurrection is the foremost. It is the major hang-up for people who want to believe in Christianity because it has a lot of good things to say, because Jesus had a lot of good things to teach. But I can't accept the resurrection. I can't accept that some dude came back from the dead. I can't accept the supernatural elements of Christianity. But here's the point. And when we think about the elementary doctrine of Christ, you cannot have Christianity without the resurrection. The moral framework, the benefits to society make no sense without the power of the miracle. The entire thing is built upon one man being raised from the dead. And without that event, the rest doesn't matter. The rest is irrelevant. You cannot have Christianity without the power of that miracle. Paul says it very explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And he's thinking about this uh, from, a, from a broad perspective, right? Of course, the Sadducees, one of the things about the Sadducees, they didn't believe in any resurrection whatsoever. It was impossible for anybody to be raised from the dead. And so his point, you know, if you say there's no resurrection of the dead, you don't believe in a resurrection at all, then of course Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We even be found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, useless, worthless, meaningless. You're still in your sins. 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, which is what ultimately people are going for, right? Let's, let's just have the benefits of Christianity in this life and we'll sort of divorce it from sort of the supernatural elements and we'll just sort of have the, 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 the benefits here. But if in this life we have hope only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Why pity us if it's in this life that we have hope in Christ only? If, if it's just about this life, there's no resurrection of the dead, either of Christ or in the, in the final resurrection when everybody is raised. If that hasn't happened, then pity us. Pity us who would follow Christ, who would believe in his teaching, who would say that he is a good teacher, who had a lot of good things to say. Pity us who want to believe some part of it without the most important parts. Jesus did not allow the option to divorce the benefits of his teaching from the power of his death and resurrection. His teaching has value because he was raised. Those two things cannot be separated. Matthew twenty-two twenty-three. 23. The same day Sadducees came to him. We already said this right about the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's an Old Testament thing, right? There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring left to his wife and his brother. So to the second and third, all the way down to the seventh. After all of them, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven whose wife will she be, for they all had her. Now, they're creating some crazy scenario, right? Their intent is not to genuinely seek answers, but to uh, get Jesus to fail to answer this unanswerable question. They've thought, okay, we've come up with a question that'll stump Jesus. He believes in the resurrection. This will show him that that's ridiculous. He can't answer it, right? And so they have this scenario. This woman marries all seven of these brothers throughout her life. And of course, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? But they don't really care. And this is a lot of the ways that people question Christianity in specific, religion more generally, but Christianity specifically, people are not engaging to find truth. They're not engaging to find real answers. They're engaging because they want to trick people up. They want to show that it's ridiculous and dumb. That's what the Sadducees are trying to do. And so Jesus' answer is very instructive. He answered them, you are wrong. Well, that's a weird way to answer a question. Jesus, how is this going to work? You're wrong. That's how Jesus answers it. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. They're like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus drives at their hearts, not the question, right? He doesn't, the question is, he gives an answer, but that's secondary to their hearts. You are wrong. Why? Because you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. You're denying the most basic power of God by denying the resurrection. If the dead are not raised, what are we doing here? The answer is it's pointless. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Then he does give them an answer, right? That's a dumb question. That's not how it works in heaven, which is fine. It's good to know that, I guess. But then the second part here, it's not that God was, and he, he, this is a very linguistic argument, right? Very, uh, very nuanced take on language. We talked about language in our Sunday morning Bible class. Jesus was very concerned about language. And even making this argument from the tenses, I, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what you might say. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're dead and gone, they'll never come back. 
Well, God was their God. They're gone now. But what's the point? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why am I still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because they're still around. They'll come back. They're going to live forever. I am perpetually their God. And so the road to eternal life, which really that's what we're going for here, right? The road to eternal life begins with a simple question. And it is simple yet so important. Do you believe in the resurrection? If we're going to distill the evangelistic pursuit down to one thing, it is this. We are asking people, do you believe in the resurrection? That's it. That's the core of it. That's the whole basis of the entire faith. Now, there's a bunch of ways to approach. Whoa, I hate it when it does that. I hate it when it does that so much. There's a bunch of different ways to approach this question. Okay, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? We could consider the question scientifically, okay? Uh, philosophy, science, pondering the existence of God, the possibility of the supernatural. Uh, when I teach apologetics, this is one of the main pillars, right? Okay, can we know that God exists? And the argument, basically speaking, is this. If there is a God, any God, not talking about Yahweh, but if there is any God at all, if we can be confident that there is a God, some sort of deity, then we can also be confident that miracles are possible, right? Just supernatural events. If there's a deity, well, of course the deity could do something supernatural. So the resurrection is at least possible, right? We can't discount miracles just wholesale if there's some kind of deity. And there's a whole bunch of arguments, and we're not going to go into them now, but a whole bunch of arguments just from first principles, from basic understanding of the natural world, that we can reasonably conclude there's some sort of deity, right? There is a God, some sort of God, some creator out there. Which means that as I'm examining the resurrection, do I believe in the resurrection? I can't just discount it because it's supernatural, if there's a God, because he could, some whatever God there is, could have the resurrection, could make it happen. Which shifts our question to the second part of this, okay? First, scientifically, is there a God? How can I be confident in God's existence? To we could ponder the question historically. Do I believe in the resurrection from a historical perspective? How do we have the ability to know historical events? How does the resurrection compare to other events in history? I can't just discount it because it's a miracle, because I believe in some sort of deity. So it becomes a historical question, like any historical question. How do we know that Abraham Lincoln existed? How do we know that Alexander the Great existed? How do we know that Homer existed? Any, anybody you want to put in there, we have this historical claim. The resurrection, this event that happened around 2,000 years ago, how does it compare to other events in history? What sort of evidence do we have? What sort of accounts do we have? And so we might move from scientific arguments from philosophy and science to his history. And I'll just say this again, we're not going to go into these, but as an example, we have more historical evidence for the person of Jesus than we do for the Roman emperor who lived at his day. Think about that. The Roman emperor, the most politically significant person at the time, we have more historical evidence for the person of Jesus of Nazareth than that guy. And we could go in and talk about the resurrection and a bunch of different things. But ultimately we might consider it as people are beginning to do from a utilitarian perspective. Is it worth believing it, even if it isn't true? What does it do to people to believe in the power of the resurrection? And in fact, as we consider things from a historical perspective, 
we see this radical shift in the apostles. We see this message of the resurrection begin to spread so rapidly throughout the Roman world and, and so amazingly quickly and, and eventually in about 300 years becomes the predominant mode of thought over the globe. Now, not everybody. Obviously, we understand not everybody. And while we don't have time to dig into these questions in detail today, I do want to offer a mid-sermon inv invitation. I do this occasionally. If you doubt the resurrection, maybe you doubt it scientifically, okay? We need to talk about that. Maybe you doubt it historically. How can we be certain that, that the accounts that we have are accurate? Uh, if, if you have doubts about that, let's talk. Right? There are a whole bunch of things that we can talk about. And, and I never want to present the, the, the truth of God's word as something that we can't question. We can't have any doubts about. I know that there's questions. I know people have doubts. But rather than stew on those on your own to begin to have cracks form in our faith, let's talk about them. Let's address them openly, honestly. There's no shame. I cannot say this strongly enough. There is no shame in having questions. Right? Questions are just ignorance. Maybe it's how you're raised. Maybe you just have a misunderstanding. Maybe nobody taught you before. That's fine. I don't feel bad about that. What I do feel bad about is when people have questions and they won't come talk about it. They won't come ask. Let's address these things. Because the question demands thoughtful consideration. There is no more important question than this. Do you believe in the resurrection? I can say that with whole confidence. There is no more important question in your life. She's very sad. It's a very sad thing. Belief in the resurrection has serious consequences, right? Both in the demands of such a belief and how others will respond to that belief in us. Individually, the question, do you believe in the resurrection, carries some important implications for how I should live, what I should do, how I should think, how I should talk. But then also how it affects my place in society. How people are going to treat me. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing the power of the resurrection necessarily leads to sharing in his sufferings. You cannot know the power of his resurrection until you yourself have died. What does that mean? What are we counting as loss? We're counting as loss all things, including what I used to believe. My own priority in my life. That I used to be the most important thing in my life, but now I'm not anymore. I mean, it was my family. Maybe I love my family. My family's great. My family is secondary to Christ. I'm counting all things as loss. Put whatever you want to put in there. That's what I have to be willing to give up, right? If I want to share in the power of his resurrection, to share and then also in his sufferings. I appreciated what Robin said in his talk about the, the crucifixion. Jesus point to Pilate. I'm submitting myself. You have authority because God gave it to you because I'm choosing not to take over right now. 
Counting all things as loss. That's what Jesus did, right? He counted all things as loss. That's what I have to do. Which means it might be relationships that I have with others that are preventing me from serving Christ. It might be the good opinion that others have of me. I have a good reputation. People like me. People think I'm smart. People think I'm intelligent. But if they knew I was a Christian, they'd think I was dumb. Do I want my reputation or, or do I want to know the power of the resurrection? It might be some hobby or habit or, or thing that I like to do that is going to come between me and Christ. And I better count it as loss if I want to, by any means possible, attain the resurrection of the dead. Romans 6, 5 through 11. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The if-then statement, what's the implied opposite? If I have not been united in his death, I will not be united in his resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no dominion over him any longer for the death that he died to sin once for all. Uh, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. You must also then consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The first suffering. I want to share in the power of his resurrection. I have to share in his sufferings. The first suffering is self-denial, self-death. What does that mean? We're not talking about physical death, right? What are we talking about? I'm killing who I was. What I cared about, what I prioritized, what I wanted, my hopes, my dreams. Dead and gone. All gone. All gone. Why? Because I want to be like Christ. Of course, this is emblemized in immersion, in baptism. Begins with repentance, doesn't it? Isn't that what repentance is? The admitting that the old me was dumb and stupid and wrong. I was dumb and stupid and wrong. God, you're right. You're the one that I need to follow. You're the one I need to be, that needs to be in control. That's repentance. To say that I was wrong and I need to do better. To confess him before men. We can think about all these things that we've been talking about. At the end of the day, it is an attempt, a, a, a pursuit of the resurrection. The old me is dead and gone, and I have been raised. Why? Because he was raised. Of course, the promise is worth the pain. I hope we believe this, but we get hung up on this point, right? There's going to be a lot of difficulty if I'm going to answer the question, do you believe in the resurrection? Yes, I believe in the resurrection, going to lead to some difficulty in my life, but the promise is worth the pain. Acts 6.22. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying that nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first. That word first is a very important word in the sentence. The first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's the first. Why? Because hopefully so many people are going to follow in that. There's the concept in Revelation of the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection, that when we kill ourselves, our old self, when we rise in newness of life, looking forward ultimately to the second resurrection. He's the firstborn among many brothers, it said in another place, because as he was raised from the dead, so will we be. Raised to light and life. Raised to to be with him. We've been talking about this in our study on Wednesday night, of course, of the resurrection, right? Of the rapture, quote unquote, the rapture in the Thessalonian letter. 
when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then the rest of us who remain, maybe that'll be us, maybe it won't be, maybe we'll all be dead and gone by then. We'll go be with them forever with the Lord. John 5, 25. Of course, we understand, and we'll talk about this more next week. As I said, these can't be divorced, separated. Resurrection is not reserved for the faithful. John 5, 25. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in him, himself. And as he has given him authority to execute judgments, because he is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Sharing in his suffering now is in the pursuit of having one of these kinds of resurrections, the resurrection of life. Because ultimately, it's impossible to separate these last two items, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Everyone, let's say this as plainly as we can, everyone will experience resurrection. It is the fundamental pillar of Christianity. Christ was raised, defeated the power of death. He is victorious. And as part of that, he has now been given the right to judge. That judgment, can't avoid it by dying. Everyone will face that judgment. And as a necessary part of that, we will all be raised. So the point is to share in the first resurrection now, to crucify our old self, to rise to walk in newness of life, so that I can have a particular kind of resurrection at the end. Acts 17, 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, thinking about the Old Testament, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That day when, as we read in John 5, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of judgment. And he, has, uh, he, has, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The point of the resurrection as a historical event, as a scientific question, a utilitarian consideration the resurrection demands a response because the resurrection in its very nature implies judgment. Judgment is coming. And so the question, do you believe in the resurrection, is ultimately a question of judgment. We'll talk about that next week as we talk about eternal judgment. But we offer the invitation today. You don't have to have to worry. Have to just sort of bypass the question of judgment. Am I ready or not? Do I have to worry about it? No. If you've shared in the first resurrection, if you've been united with him in his death, killed the old self, if you've been buried with him and raised, good news. You're good to go. Faithfully. Sharing in his resurrection. Sharing in his sufferings. So what? What did Paul say? By any means possible attain the resurrection of the dead. He says that sort of tongue-in-cheek by any means. 
We know there is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we offer the invitation to be ready. To unite yourself in a death like his. To repent, confess, to be immersed for your sins. So that you can share in his resurrection to come.